Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Tuesday, June the 16th. This is episode 221 of the Survival Podcast as we take another trip down the road together. Today, once again, though, I am being chauffeured by my personal driver, also known as Matt, my son, who is uh, doing some unpaid internship work at my company. Uh, I wasn't here yesterday because his boss was not at work. That's right, he doesn't work for me. Anyway, uh, so I have my hands free, my eyes free, and I'm relaxing in the passenger seat while we have a discussion going down the road at, oh, about 70 miles an hour right now. Uh, which is a nice change, and I won't get to do this that often, but when I do, I'll let you know. All right, so um, before we get into today's to- show topic, which today I'm doing another one of these uh, listener question shows, honestly, because this is a great time to do it while somebody else is driving. I can actually read the questions instead of just glancing the, out of them out of the corner of one eye. Um, so that's why we're doing that today. Um, but before we do that, I want to go ahead and knock out our house clean. I have quite a bit today. Number one, c- consider this kind of a last uh, request or a last opportunity for people to get involved with the 10% project is either a designer or a developer. Uh, the 10% project is kind of a semi-covert project right now. We're not really telling you exactly what's going on. I've got a great team of people starting to form. I've set up a private forum. Uh, you have to be approved when you join to make sure we keep everybody out until it's said time to bring them in. Um, what I'm looking for now is people with either graphics design, web development, or web programming capabilities to help build the platform and the technology itself. Once I get that process kind of rolling and it's obvious where it's going and we kind of know what we're doing, I'm going to then go to phase two of this. And if you are a person that is knowledgeable about planting trees, bushes, vines, things like that, varieties, or simply can do research, compile information, and help us put together a guidebook, that will be phase two, but I'm not ready for that yet. So right now I'm looking for technical and design people only. Um, And again, this is a volunteer project. I've had a few people uh, send me their contract rates. It's not not getting the whole community involvement thing if you're doing that. All right, the next thing is Member Support Brigade. Um, If you think the show's worth more than $0.25 an episode to you, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content only available to members. I am really going to try, depending on what goes on at the office today, to get the discount code for one of our sponsors into the Member Support Brigade, along with some other material that's been sent to me uh, by James Talmadge Stevens, and to finally get the videos from two weeks ago again, now up onto uh, the member support brigade. They're done, they're uploaded, they're ready to go. I just have to go in there and edit the pages and put some links in. All right. Uh, next thing, make sure you're supporting our advertisers. They are the guys, uh, one of the sources of revenue that help keep the show going. 
advertiser of the day, John Willis's group, SOE Tactical Gear. Great stuff, high-quality equipment. When your competitors say that your product is overbuilt, that means that you build something really high-quality. That's what John's competitors say about him. Last thing I thought I'd throw out today in our house cleaning is an invitation for those of you who have thought about joining the forum, thought about posting the forum, and haven't done so yet. Please consider getting involved. You will start to make connections and make really good friends on our forum. Um, we don't all get along all the time. We don't all agree all the time, but that's because we're all independents with different viewpoints. Um, but I'll tell you what, the people that have gotten involved in the forum, I get emails from them telling me how big a part of their life it's become, how many things that they've learned from fellow forum members, and how they actually view these people that they've never actually pressed palms with, friends. So consider joining our forum. You can find that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Survival Forum or just Forum, depending on which nav bar you're looking at. All right, so let's get on to uh, the main topic of today's show. Knock that one out in about four minutes, even with a little addition in there. Um, but the first point, I guess, is not really a question. It was after I did my show yesterday about nine undiscussed or underrated threats. Somebody sent me a new one uh, that uh, Jules Dervais put out on his blog yesterday. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you what, this is something that I've said in prior shows could happen. And, you know, damn the bird flu. This is... Uh, this is bad, folks. That's all I can tell you. This is bad, and you probably won't hear about it in the media until you're paying twice as much for a loaf of bread. Um, there is a fungus called UG99 that is uh, quite devastating to wheat crops. And this fungus originated in wheat crops in eastern Africa. It's already jumped across the Red Sea, and it's already it started to infect wheat crops in Iran. And they figure the Indian breadbasket is next. So that's major portions of the world's wheat production right there uh, being hit by a fungus, which is basically, you know, like a, like a mushroom, basically. But we're talking about a, you know, a kind of a much smaller fungus than a typical mushroom. And what this does is it's very damaging, very debilitating to wheat crops. And uh, the scientists that are studying this right now are saying that as much as 80% of the wheat in the infected areas could be lost. And it's a very difficult fungus to fight. Now, again, you have to think about what we're talking about. We're talking about wheat, one of the primary grains used to feed people. And of course, everything's being aggravated by the fact that we grow one or two or three varieties of wheat, monoculture fields, huge wheat fields, nothing else in there, nothing breaking them up. So once that fungus starts hitting these farms, it spreads like wildfire. If you think about like a pandemic for people, where does it spread the worst? It spreads in the worst workplace. It spreads in schools. It spreads at, uh, uh, in transportation uh, situations like planes and trains and, and uh, buses because people are in confined spaces in close proximity to each other. Well, you think about a wheat field. You've got miles and miles of wheat standing side by side, and this fungus is just uh, traveling across them. So how bad will this one be? Will it really kill 80% of the wheat? How far will it spread? I don't have the answers to those questions. All I'm telling you is what we have here is a real pandemic but a pandemic that's infecting wheat. And it's something you should keep an eye on. And I wonder how long it's going to be before any of the mainstream media people really explain this for what it is. All right, so uh, let's get on with some actual questions now. Uh, First question I have today is, how did I learn so much about growing food? And what books and or resources would I recommend for people? I'd say most of what I've learned, you're going to have 
Uh, most of what I've learned uh, actually came from my time growing up under the direction of my grandfather, uh, who grew a garden right up until he just actually physically couldn't do it anymore. And uh, I believe he learned most of what he did from his his father, uh, who was a first-generation immigrant from Ukraine, that when they came to America and they bought the house that my grandfather was living in, was actually the house that his, uh, his father originally uh, built on the little roughly close to an acre of ground in fertile soil in Pennsylvania when he got there after living a life where you weren't allowed to own land and basically people were still serfs when my great-grandfather came here he immediately saw the value of the land and began to uh, to raise crops and, and, and do production. Plant grapevines plant currant bushes, plant uh, berry bushes, he planted apple trees he planted walnut trees and I learned a lot about the longevity of some of those things by being told your great grandfather planted that apple tree and um so that's really the roots of that. Since then, I've continued to read, and there's plenty of information out there. There's a ton of information online. Honestly, I think that you can learn a lot just from uh, various uh, vendors' catalogs. If you really read about the different varieties, read why they were created, um, go to places like Seed Savers Exchange, get their catalog, uh, sign up, become a supporting member of, of Seed Savers Exchange. It's 35 bucks a year. Uh, the publications they send you will teach you way more than $35 worth of value. There's plenty of stuff out there. I guess that um, the best book I could really probably recommend is, is uh, Mel Bartholomew's New Square Foot Gardening. Um, not so much because of you know just the square foot method, but you learn a lot from reading that book about just how simple at least vegetable gardening and, and herbal gardening really is. Um, the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook is a great book if you want uh, to learn more about herbs and how to actually turn them into medicine. And it really focuses just on 35 herbs and one fungus, being the reishi mushroom. And that will teach you a ton as well. Um, there's a couple other books I can't think of right now, but I'll put links in the show notes today when I get a chance to look them up. But I would say that the biggest thing you can do is get involved on the Internet with all the different blogs that are out there, people that are growing things themselves. Get real-time feedback, and uh, not really with vegetables, but with everything that's kind of a permanent crop, you're going to be able to share an awful lot of information with the 10% project, but I can't really tell you any more about that right now. Um, the next one that uh, I want to answer is a question that came from a person who basically said, you know, he got his wife on board after listening to show number 123 and taking some advice from that. But he has a friend, and I, I, get, I, I get that this guy is probably either in the U.K., or Australia based on his use of vernacular. Um, he uses words like pub and mate. And uh, that's not typical American terminology. But basically what he says is there's one friend of his that he sees at the pub like every Friday night, hangs out with him, drinks beer, plays darts, what have you. Never after all these years did he realize how big this guy was into farming and gardening and things like that. And he decided this is a guy I'd really like to share you know, this, this year's show with. But uh, I don't know how he's going to take the word survival and the stigma that goes with survivalism. You know, can you give me some ideas about how I could share this, this 
this this show with my friend without making them think I'm you know crawling down in a bunker somewhere. Um, I think this is a good question because there's probably a lot of people that have similar situations that maybe have hesitated to tell people about our show uh, because of a stigma or what have you. Um, I, I say you know I talk to the press, I talk to people that do, I do podcasts with all the time, and the first thing I say if they ask me about the show is well the biggest thing about our show is that we're really not into the you know the typical stereotype that people see with survivalism we're really about self-sufficiency and living a better life so i would just say hey look i found this great podcast where this guy talks about self-sufficiency and living a better life, and he talks about a lot of things that I've been concerned about, like economic threats and what you can do to make sure that if something you know happens to to you personally or to to our country or whatever, that you are set up to deal with it as good as possible. And then tell them the name of the show. Because now it's a soft entry into it. And I wouldn't worry too much about it. If you've got somebody that's that big into providing their own food, I promise you they might already be listening to the show and be thinking, how do I tell this guy about it? Um, make sure that you just understand that survival and survivalism and survivalist doesn't have to mean what a lot of people think it means that are uninformed. And, and think about the fact that you know there's language courses out there that are called survival Spanish, right? Now, survival Spanish is not learning how to throw grenades out of a bunker and yell, you know, uh, abajo, abajo, get down, get down, right? It's about learning how to use the Spanish language effectively. Well, the survival podcast isn't about climbing down in a bunker with MREs, right, and a gun and hiding out and waiting for the end like a freak, right? The survival podcast is about learning how to use your own skills and your own resources to survive life no matter what's thrown at you and not just to survive but to thrive to live that better life so you know share the shows say hey look this show's caption is living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't when they say okay well how do I find it say it's at the survival you know right down survivalpodcast.com don't make it about survivalism because what we mean by survivalism here isn't what the mainstream media means by survivalism but that's their fault that's their problem that's not ours in fact, this reminds me of something. There's an article that I got mentioned in that I'll link to from today's show. You guys got to read this article. Guy didn't plug my show or anything for me. He just mentioned me by name. Says I was a survival guru, uh, which I really have, I don't like being called a guru about anything. I think it's a little bit uh, egotistical to refer to yourself as a guru. But he said basically that if society is to apply a stigma to the types of things that we discuss here, that's society's problem, not ours. And the way the guy wrote it's it's not my ego speaking folks this guy is a writer we need more people like this in journalism uh i won't try to you know paraphrase what he said because i will butcher his eloquent use of language please have a read of this guy's uh post it was on a blog for uh, northern utah or something like that uh but this guy this guy is the guy that you know if uh, the, the new york times want to resurrect their dying publication they should hire people like this because i don't care what he's writing about he's going to say it eloquently 
All right. Uh, so that's the best answer I can give to that. Next question was, recently I was talking about bug out bags, and I mentioned that I had purchased a hatchet-knife combo from uh, Gerber, where the knife actually goes up into the handle. And the person wanted to know if I had any further thoughts about it at this time. Uh, number one, I bought the smallest version, very short-handled hatchet, uh, fairly small knife. I did that for lightweight uh, and uh, taking up as little space as possible in the bug out bag. If I had it to do over again and uh, hadn't already spent the money, I would buy the larger size. Probably the, there's three sizes. I'd probably buy the biggest one out of the three. I think that the hatchet would swing a lot better and be a lot better balanced uh, with a longer handle. So I don't necessarily recommend the very small, compact version of it. But what I have to say is, like anything I've ever purchased made by Gerber, the quality is, is just absolutely 100% top-notch. I took the axe out and, you know, took a couple pieces of two by four and split it to see how its splitting capability was, and it worked very well. The knife is absolutely razor sharp, easy to hone. It's made with that typical satin finished steel that most Gerber stuff is made with, and uh, I really think it is a good tool. My concern when I looked at it and saw the way that the knife inserted into the handle that it would have a tendency to drop. Uh, but I've taken it and I've basically held the handle in my hand and then, you know, with what's left of my fist, punched uh, my desk as hard as I can. And I cannot get the knife to fall out. So the little magnetic uh, thing that holds the knife in works very well, but yet it's very easy to remove. So I think it's a great way to have a tool with multiple capabilities to have an extra knife on you. you got to have a good hatchet or axe uh, with you when you go into the wilderness and just in your bug out bag as a whole. I think it's one of the most useful tools you can have as a good a- hatchet or axe. Can't really fault it. I would buy the larger size. That's all I can say there. And uh, maybe I'll post If I can find a link to uh, the product itself uh, somewhere online, I'll post a link to them so you guys can take a look at them if you don't know what I'm talking about. But, again, it's kind of that rubber, sticky uh, material that Gerber uses on a lot of their knives and a lot of knife makers make uh, use. Uh, That's on the axe handle, and it's on the knife handle. Very slick little tool. Great little sheath. can be carried on a belt, inside a bag, outside a bag. Just upgrade the size a bit. The next question is, what was the... uh, What was the outcome last week of the really bad weather that you guys had in Dallas-Fort Worth? Did you get any real damage or not? Uh, I guess I had mentioned this, and I guess people, it was actually bad enough, it was on the news up in the Northwest, which is where this question came from. And uh, I got to tell you, I don't think we really got anything that was that damaging uh, long term. Now, last week during a show, you may have heard me sitting in my car and heard a background noise that honestly, I think it sounded like somebody beating on the roof of my car with a ball-peen hammer, and that was a mixture of uh, very large rain and very small hail as I sat on Loop 12, where we are right now, for over an hour without moving. Sitting on top of the bridge that goes across the, uh, the, uh, the, the, I guess they call it the clear fork of the Trinity River, even though it's far from clear. It's pretty gross. Uh, I sat on that bridge with the winds blowing and actually feeling the bridge sway for about an hour. And I gotta tell you, if I would have been there much longer, I might have been throwing the bug out bag on and hiking home. Uh, it didn't seem like we were ever gonna move. What it turned out is there was some, a bad wreck up by Texas Stadium. And then, uh, after they got the wreck cleared, 
or when they got most of the wreck cleared, there was so much water on a part of the road, they basically blocked the highway for a while until the water receded. So the two together caused a huge backup. There was crap all over the road last week, both days that we had bad storms. But I don't think it was from wind. I think it was from high water. Uh, That's a good thing to point out and always remember. There's more people killed every year in storms because of water than because of the effects of wind. Uh, So that was mostly what we had. There were supposed to be several small, if you can ever have a small tornado, small tornadoes uh, up around, actually where I work, up around the Plano Frisco area. I called my partner, Neil. He was hanging out having a martini while one was on the ground, supposedly about a half mile away. And uh, they weren't too worried because it wasn't heading north. It was heading west. And uh, But I haven't really seen any damage. I've seen a few trees with some uh, branches knocked down. That's all that really happened. Uh, again, I, I say we have been skating this year, uh, getting away with, uh, with murder, so to speak, and not having the severe weather that we generally do in the North Texas area. And I'm fine with it. I, I'm hoping that by the time uh, we have another bad year, like I guess our last four, uh, maybe I've already made the big bug out and relocated up to the mountains where you don't get as many tornadoes. Because uh, we've had a, just a ton of tornadic activity around here. We've had massive flooding. Last year, in fact, there was a trailer park that got hit by floods that literally ripped the trailers off their moorings. And uh, it was a pretty uh, a pretty bad flood, and it wasn't that big of a storm. It's just everything hit the right way. So that's something to always be aware of. And the main reason I answer the question is to point out to you that, remember, we don't have to have the end of the world as we know it for your life to be massively interrupted. Pay attention to the weather. weather. For most people, it is the number one most probable threat to do damage to where they live or do damage to them physically. Okay, so on that note, a guy said uh, from the DFW area that he had some uh, corn plants uh, that were doing pretty well last week before the heavy storm hit, and then he lost uh, more than half of them getting blown over and uh, heavy, heavy winds from those storms. And uh, a few were able to prop back up, but they weren't actually damaged. But basically, do I know any way to protect tall plants from heavy wind? And the answer is yes, you use what's called a windscreen. So what do you use to create a windscreen? Well, the best windscreen is going to allow some wind to uh, come through it. It's going to give and bend and not be very rigid so that it doesn't uh, snap under heavy pressures. And it's going to block another wind to mitigate the, 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 the wind effect right beyond it. So what's one of the best things you can do? Either tall hedges or trellises with uh, with uh, creeping vines, grapevines, things like that, because they'll give and they'll move. One of the things that was done a lot in Pennsylvania to protect crops from the wind is you figure out, well, if the prevailing wind comes from, let's see, uh, the, the west, you would then on your western line of your garden space plant a huge row of tall-growing raspberry bushes, and they would act as a great windbreak. I would even continue to act somewhat as a windbreak in the winter uh, when when the leaves fell off them because there was so much framework of them there. And you might even do two layers of that, a row of blackberries and then your rows of grapes, and then you go ahead, and from there you plant your garden. So it doesn't really matter what you you could use a row of, um, you know, a hedge created out of Osage Orange. You could use a hedge created out of Filbert's uh, uh, hazelnuts, if you call them that whatever you want, but a good, solid hedgerow. 
um, on your prevailing wind side of your crops is about the best way I know to do that. Another way is to strategically locate your crops with any fencing that you have to provide some wind protection for the fencing and or your, your house can be used as well as a wind block. It all depends on what's the prevailing wind uh, in your area and then trying to balance that with uh, leaving enough space so that you don't create a shade effect uh, that you know causes more harm than good, uh, so to speak. So if you have your shadows landing on your garden for half the day and you're robbing four hours of sunlight from your garden, that doesn't work. So you have to balance those things out all together. But multiple layers of hedgerows combined with fencing and or structure, best way to make that happen. Um, you can stake things up. Pepper plants, not this year, but last year we had a lot of really bad wind. I lost some peppers in the wind because it basically just tore the branches off or broke them over. What I did was after I lost one, I went and staked the rest of them up, and I staked them with a lot of give. In other words, I used rags, and I gave them a good inch that they could move either side, but at some point they would be stopped, and uh, I didn't lose any more peppers to the wind. So you can stake up plants as well, uh, plants that maybe you wouldn't normally stake. I don't normally stake peppers up, but I did last year to combat the wind. Uh, but obviously with something like corn, you can't go in there and stake up corn. Now, I do have a way to do it if you really want to, and it is the Mel Bartholomew way, the square foot garden way. You plant a square foot garden, let's say a four foot by four foot square of corn. You plant four corn plants to each square. Okay, so you get a pretty good crop of corn out of that. You take and you build basically a cage out of chicken wire with large opening wire or just maybe crossed wires at the top that the corn can grow through. You build that cage so that it comes up about three feet and then the corn plants can grow out through it. That will protect your corn plants from anything like raccoons or whatever getting in there or deer getting in there and being able to eat your corn. The corn will grow right through the top and will provide a lot of support for them. So there is a way to do it, but it involves a construction project and a planning methodology. But if you want to stake your corn up and prevent it from blowing over, that'll do it, and raccoons won't be munching on your corn before you do. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, take the next question. My next question was, um, how long can you store seeds? And what's the best, best, best method of storing them so that they last a long time? Well, Let's let's take that as a multi-part question because it really is. First of all, how long can you store seeds? Most seeds are considered viable for about two to four years. And if you go to Seed Savers Exchange, you can find the storage life of just about every type of seed uh, that you can think of. So it might say that tomatoes have an expected storage life of, and that eggplant have an expected storage life of, that type of thing. Those are assuming that the seed is kept dry and at relatively cool temperatures. The way that you extend the life of your seed storage is to completely remove any air from the situation. So vacuum sealing them and keeping light away from them. Those two together uh, will extend the storage life of your seeds. Next thing to understand is seed never goes bad 
per se. What happens is as it ages, your germination rate declines. In other words, you might save seeds from your brandy wine tomatoes this year. Um, you crush your tomatoes. The, you throw the pulp in a jar with some water. You put a piece of cheesecloth on it. You wait a couple days. Big gross fungus forms on the top. After that fungus is formed, you dump it off. You rinse your seeds. You dry them out. You put them in a Ziploc bag. That's saving tomato seeds. And every seed has a little bit different way that you do it. Seed Savers Exchange is the site to look up to find out how to save any and all seeds and your rules of separation. That's a whole show. I can't do that today. But there's just one example. Once you have that seed, if you put it into a Ziploc bag or a jar or something and then put it somewhere where it's not exposed to light and label it, then you can look at, you know, a tomato seed's three to four years of storage life on average. Okay, five years. Is your seed bad? Probably not. But what you'll probably see is, year one, you probably would have got like 95% of your seeds would have germinated. Year two, you get, you know, 93%, 92%, or 90% of your seeds. Year three, it falls off to like 88%. And, and these aren't hard numbers. This is just a rough estimate of what you could expect. But what happens once you go past that storage life, you might see your germination rates go down to 50%. So that's really what storage life. Now, how long can seed really be stored? Um, over in the, uh, in the in the Mideast, and of course it's a very dry climate over there, they found date palm seeds from date palms that were stored over 2,000 years ago in urns. They planted the seeds, 2,000-year-old seed, and it grew. So theoretically, seed can be stored for longer than you can live if conditions are optimum. One of the ways to do that is put your seeds into a vacuum seal bag and vacuum seal them. Another thing that extends the storage life of seeds is, is you know, uh, cool temperatures. So refrigerating them or at least keeping them in a place where temperatures don't rise significantly. Uh, but it, it, to give you an idea of how my grandfather ran his garden, every year we would save the seeds from the peppers and the tomatoes and we'd let a couple cucumbers get really huge and not usable to form good seed and things like that. We'd take all our seeds, and we'd put them away, and we'd label them. Next year, we would start our plants from those seeds. Now, we would always take about four to five times more seed than we would actually need for next year's crop. That allowed us, if maybe the first one, the first crop, maybe we put out the cold frame, it got really cold, and they died, we had a backup, okay? So we had at least two shots, and then we would still have two seasons worth of seed left. The next season, we would do the same thing again, and we would store the new seed. When we started our plants that next season, we would use the freshest seed we had. Once the crops were established for the year, okay, and ran the cycle and were being harvested for another succession of seeds. So now we have three seed banks. We would take the oldest seed we basically discarded it. That way we always had very fresh seed and one season old seed and we had backup and redundancy and we weren't going to discard seed until and it, you know, did we need to discard that seed? Probably not, but it just made it easier to make sure that we kept everything organized. And my grandfather was a thrifty man so once we had the seed from the freshest crop and allowed us to take the containers that the other seeds were stored in uh, relabel them and put the new seed in there so we didn't need more containers because uh, he just was that kind of guy. Now what he stored his seed in what is not what I would store my seed in today. He had friends save baby food jars for him and he stored all the seed in little baby food jars because they were convenient. They would hold plenty of seed when you're talking about how small these things are. Uh, they were easy to label and they were easy to organize and he kept them in a dark cupboard 
in an unair-conditioned shanty, which is kind of like a shed for you guys that have never been up to the uh, to the northeast and the coal towns. Um, that's absolutely not what I would do today, but all I can tell you is it worked just fine. But if I wanted to make sure that my seeds could be stored long-term, uh, I would vacuum seal them, I would label them, and I would probably put them in maybe to get a piece of PVC pipe with a couple end caps and use that as my uh, seed bank. Uh, that could be stored in just about anywhere, and uh, you could build up fairly significant seed banks that way. And uh, they do store long-term. The only important thing is, at least every third year, any seed that you want to maintain a seed crop of, you need to plant a crop and harvest new seeds. Try to keep your seeds no more than three years old, and uh, that will ensure that most of them you'll have high germination rates with. Uh, Next question. Person says, you know, might it be a good idea if you're buying a bug-out location to make sure that the mineral rights convey when you purchase the land. You don't want somebody coming and setting up uh, a gas drill in your garden. Well, there's a couple things there. One, you're assuming that just because somebody has the mineral rights uh, uh, to minerals on your property, that they also have the right to enter your property to extract them. They do not. Okay? All that them having the mineral rights means is if they can remove them without disturbing your property... You don't get paid. So would I say you should have the mineral rights to your property? Uh Uh-huh. If you can do it. Now, there are pieces of property that have been sitting around and been traded over 100 years that you can't get the mineral rights to because they were, you know, signed off long ago on. But that doesn't mean that anybody's coming there. Um, Reading Coal Company owns the mineral rights to the coal, just to the coal, underneath my father's home, which is my great-grandfather's home that he built. It's been that way forever. The coal's still down there. If they want to mine it, they can't come dig a hole where his house is and do that. They would have to shaft mine it from somewhere else. So with gas and oil, if someone owns the mineral rights to the gas and oil on your property, they don't get to set up a drill on your property without paying you for the access rights for the drill. They just don't have to pay you on the gas that's removed. They don't have to pay you any kind of a typical bonus, and they don't have to pay you any kind of royalty. Now what that means is they could set up a half mile away and tap into the reserves under your property and pump it. I don't know how you feel about that, but it ain't going to hurt anything, uh, at least if they do everything they're supposed to do. There's environmental consideration there, but that's about harvesting gas or oil as a whole. That's not about your individual mineral rights, which is all I'm really discussing today. I would prefer that you have them. My biggest preference would be that you have your mineral rights and that you have a bug out location in a place where there isn't gas, oil, tin, copper, coal, anything like that. Because then your property is less advantageous and you have less opportunity for people to come in there and want to screw around with everything. It's one of the reasons that I really like our place up in Arkansas. The only thing under the ground there that's worth anything is quartz. And it's everywhere up there. So I don't really have a lot of mining to worry about or oil extraction to worry about or anything like that. That said, it can pay off. We have the mineral rights to our property here in uh, Arlington. We got a very nice bonus check uh, for them to start drilling. And if they ever actually start pumping gas, we'll get royalty checks. And we'll get royalty checks for as long as they pump gas. When I sell the property, the mineral rights will not convey. I've already conveyed the mineral rights on a lease to Chesapeake Gas and Oil. So I'll continue to get checks even after we sell the house. And if they want to renew that, I retain the rights left to renew with me uh, if they don't pump as much as they need to at the end of the three-year term. So 
it worked out really well financially for myself and many other homeowners in North Texas. There's been some environmental concerns, but there haven't actually been any environmental problems. And I, for one, don't believe the earthquakes in Cleburne, Texas, have anything to do with people pumping gas out of the ground. And the only people that do are politicians. So uh, not real worried about that one at all. Uh, but there's there's my thoughts on that. My, it is something I've never mentioned before. When I talk about gotchas with buying property, always ask about the mineral rights. And if the mineral rights do not convey who owns them, ask what specific mineral rights they have. Sometimes people have, like I mentioned up at my father's location, they have the rights to the coal. But if there were iron or nickel or anything like that there, they don't have the rights to them. Uh, that's not really usually that big a deal because generally speaking, if somebody has mineral rights but they don't have them all, they have the rights to anything that's down there that's worth anything. But you'll want to know that. Uh, what extraction methods would be used? Uh, is there any active plan for extraction? Is anything going on right now? Those are good questions to ask, and then in the end, you have to make your own decision. Final question, what's driving up oil prices? Is it the evil oil companies or the declining dollar? My initial belief was it was the declining dollar. Um, but as I look at currency exchange rates over the last uh, couple months, the dollar has actually strengthened against most of the world's currencies over the last 90 days uh, or remained flat. So it's not a declining dollar, at least not directly. There's some indirect effects of inflation and a declining value of the world's monetary supply that's probably at play. It's also not the evil oil companies that are doing anything in particular like restricting supplies or whatever. OPEC uh, in particular has cut supply a little bit as we try to get run off the road off the road by a freaking jerk in a government truck. Good job there, jerk. Anyway, um, so it's, it's not really, you know, OPEC's always been pulling back whenever uh, prices get too low. There's a few things at play. One, the price that oil dropped to was damn near going to bankrupt Russia. So you knew that it was going to get pushed back up one way or another. But just yesterday, the price of oil fell significantly. And the price of all commodities, copper, iron, gold, silver, fell yesterday. And, and what happened is it wasn't just oil that was being pushed up. It was all commodities. Since the stocks have had uh, you know reasonable returns, but they're still considered extremely risky, uh, since interest rates are in the toilet, the investment community really turned to commodities and started to pump some money into commodities and said, hey, you know, everything's depressed right now. There's opportunity here. That drove the market up. But just like what I was saying last year when they were talking about, oh, the speculators, the speculators, oh, God, speculating is a dangerous business. And if you over-speculate, you'll create a momentary blip if enough people do it, but eventually it's going to bite you in the ass. And that's what just happened. And you should see, you know, gas prices begin to fall a little bit off of their, their current highs, unless something turns that around. But it was really, at this point, money flowing into all the commodity markets that have had the recent short-term effect in driving up the cost of gas and oil. And when you see this little blip coming back down, and I'm not saying it's going to go all the way back down to where it was, let's say, two months ago, but this initial drop in price is really about the fact that people over-invested and 
thought that, you know, maybe there was more recovery than there was or there was more safety in commodities than as there was. And you're seeing investors in the commodity markets actually lose some money right now. That's why I always say the first place to invest is in yourself. Invest in your own electrical production. Invest in your own food production. Invest in your own transportation. Invest in your own shelter. Pay for everything. Owe no man nothing. And if you do that and you do that right, then a lot of these things that affect the rest of the world just don't affect you as much. So uh, that's my final advice today as I sign off. This has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter. Spend